Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. And nobody in this country has missed the story of refugees living on the sidewalk in Toronto in front of the um, center where the uh, they register uh, folks who need public or temporary housing shelters. So there's that, that issue that, that, is, that is percolating in Canada. But the other issue is immigration. We talked about it quite a bit with Richard Carland a few weeks ago, immigration lawyer, and I received quite a bit of reaction to that. So we do know that the Liberal government of Mr. Trudeau has pegged the immigration number to increase to 500,000 annually by 2025. 15 to 20% of immigrants to Canada leave within the first 10 years of being here. So I, I did a lot of looking around over the last few days because, as you're no doubt aware, the Dutch government, the government of the Netherlands, fell last week on the issue of immigration. The government, the ruling party, had uh, its priorities for immigration. But an anti-immigration backlash, if you want to call it that, is being experienced in Europe. And the, so the Dutch government, the Netherlands government, fell on the issue. Political, par- <coughs> excuse me, political parties are challenging immigration policies, and they've been voted into office or hold the balance of power in countries like Italy and Finland. In Austria, the Freedom Party is also challenging immigration numbers, and they're leading in the polls. Similar situation exists in Germany. And an anti-immigrant political party is receiving increased backing in Sweden. So it's starting to spread across Europe. And the political parties are described in media reports as far right. Okay. But what do you say about the people who vote for them? These are the citizens of those countries. So there's something behind this. And that is going to become more and more clear if it isn't already. But what about this country? What about Canadians? How do we view immigration? So rather than just looking at the most recent numbers and the most recent information, I thought it would be very interesting to look at what's been seen in, uh, in polling in Canada in the last five years. So pre-COVID and then post-COVID. Daryl Bricker is with us, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, the author of this magnificent book I keep telling you about, Next, which tells you all about what's coming in Canada. And Daryl, thank you very, very much for joining us. If I can just ask you a general question out of the gate, how interested are Canadians in the issue of immigration? Where does it, where does it rank? Well, it's one of those issues that tends to be around, you know, in, in the top 10, but in the lower part of the top 10. And you see immigration move up when you start to see uh, things like, for example, uh, the story you were mentioning before about uh, refugees being on the street and taking up homeless shelters or the issues that we had at Roxham Road um, in, 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 uh, in uh, Quebec. When those things start to, to percolate, then you start to see interest in immigration move up. Uh, but at the moment, uh, the, the sun is blotted out by the, uh, the question of, uh, of cost of living and, and the affordability of uh, just being a middle-class person in this country these days. Mm-hmm. So you do polling in Europe. Mm-hmm. What do you make of what's going on 
in those specific European countries, and I uh, mentioned Italy, Finland, Austria, Germany, Sweden, and Sweden really was the model for accepting newcomers for decades. What's going on there? Well, uh, they have a different view of immigration to a large extent in Europe. Uh, you know, in Canada, we think of immigration as a, as a, a policy that the government puts in place in order to rec- almost recruit people to come to the country. Yes, there's a certain you know response to refugees, refugee issues, but uh, it's it's a it's a pretty regulated process in which. Uh, for the most part, people coming into the country are people we've asked to come to the country. In Europe, it's it's quite a different situation. Most of the uh, the uh, the uh, immigration activity that's taking place of late is people coming into the, the uh, various countries either as refugees or through irregular processes. So there's a sense that there's this uh, there's this. Uh, a large number of people who are moving into European countries in ways that the Europeans may not necessarily, the general population may not necessarily have wanted them, but also that the, that the effect of these refugees moving into, uh, and, and immigrants more widely moving into European countries is changing the character of the culture and the composition of the country. And there's been, there's been a reaction to that. And quite a reaction. Yeah, really strong. And, and it really is, you know, people... Uh, I, th- I think that the, you know the argument that we'd like to have about the rise of the right in places like Europe or even in the United States is that it's it's really driven by things like, for example, international trade or or uh, you know issues that relate to economics because those are ones that are a little bit less controversial in many ways. But the real uh, uh, fuel that's driving people's uh, more populist reactions uh, in in the political systems around the world these days is reaction to immigration. So, um, Darrell, looking at this uh, poll in 2019, and I'd like to compare 2000, let's say 2019 to today as much as we can. The headline is Canadians are becoming more nervous about immigration in Canada with a growing sense that it has placed too much pressure on public services and that it is causing Canada to change in ways they don't like, according to a new Ipsos poll conducted on behalf of Global News. Okay, so that's 2019. That's before we'd ever heard the word COVID. So how would that, do you think, compare to what the attitude might be now? Well, I think, you know, we, we, uh, we've done a little bit of polling since then. And, and actually, the negativity is moving up. But, but, but the reason the negativity is moving up is because uh, Canadians, first of all, haven't had an explanation as to why there's been a big increase in immigration. The government's really not come out and said, very clearly and brought people on side with their motivations for, you know, why uh, we, we've been increasing immigration so much. And there's some, there's some good arguments you can make about why we should be doing it. But then the second thing is that what's happening now with the issue is it's starting to morph a little bit uh, in away from, you know, discomfort with change or, um, you know, your, maybe your personal values. And it's mo- more mo- uh, moving into a, a situation in which people are starting to link increasing immigration with cost, uh, particularly the increasing cost of housing. And so even a person who may not necessarily, uh, you know, have difficulty with immigration under most circumstances, all of a sudden is wondering if they're now starting to compete uh, for uh, uh, affordable housing mm-hmm. in places like the city of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is where the issue is, is very interesting in Canada, because uh, previously it was basically a hearts and minds issue, and now it's moving into potentially protect, uh, uh, economic competition uh, a conversation, and that's a very different place from where we normally have conversations about uh, about immigration. Yeah, you know, it's, it's something that I've seen over and over, actually, in emails and communication from listeners. 
500,000 immigrants per year starting in 2025, skilled or unskilled, just the number 500,000, people start to be concerned about, as you said, housing availability. They also are concerned about a terribly stressed healthcare system and its ability to cope and social programs that are under a tremendous amount of stress. So these are all questions that are out there. And am I going too far with this if I say the federal government had better communicate with Canadians on this issue and very clearly communicate if you don't want to see a re- if you don't want to see Canada in some ways I shouldn't even say this it's going to get people upset but it's a relevant question if you don't want to see Canada in some ways mimic some of the countries in Europe yeah, well, there are parts of the country that are. I mean, the province of Quebec already is. Um, but, yeah. I, well, they didn't like me, and I went there from Ontario. <laughs> That's another whole question. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's incumbent upon the government to really clearly communicate to Canadians what it is that's motivating the, the need for increasing immigration in the country. Uh, and as I said before, there are some good reasons for this, but the government can't take it for granted. And it's not the usual pap that you get out of Ottawa about, oh, you know, we're such wonderful, welcoming people. Yes, we kind of take that for granted. But there's a there's a, there's a, a really uh, important uh, series of economic and demographic necessities that require us to have increased immigration in Canada. It's an advantage for us, and the government should be clearly stating that to Canadians. The other thing, though, is that it's not just simply a matter of changing the numbers. You can't change the numbers without changing a whole bunch of other things. Like, for example, uh, the idea that you've you've got not you don't really have the infrastructure in a place like Toronto, where most immigrants move to, or our major cities where most immigrants move to. You don't have the infrastructure there or the funding in place to be able to support this increase in, in the population due to immigration. I mean, that's um, you know, Olivia Chow's been complaining about that. She's absolutely right. I mean, all the federal government did was basically just moved up the numbers and really didn't respond with any sort of uh, uh, significant financial support to the places where immigrants are moving. And by the way, for everybody on the line here who thinks that Canada is a huge country and we've got lots of space for lots of people, <coughs> pardon me, over 90% of immigrants move to our major cities. It's not like they're moving out of the countryside. Yeah, so uh, Vancouver, west to east, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. Right, Toronto mostly. But also Calgary, Western Canada. Yeah, I'm sorry. Different. I should I shouldn't have. Been, yeah, I, I should have known that, and I did actually. Yeah, a disproportionate number in Western Canada. Actually, Quebec takes in fewer immigrants per capita uh, than any other province of significant size in the country. They they actually underperform on immigration. Hmm. Fifteen to twenty percent of immigrants leave this country within the first ten years of being here. Well, and you should probably add in also the number that moved from where they actually went to. So, for example, if you look at Quebec and Atlantic Canada, they tend to lose large numbers of immigrants who tend to move to places like Toronto and to Western Canada. So, they, yeah, they, they just don't arrive and stay in place. They move around. What's your sense of what's going to happen in Europe? In Europe? Yeah. Uh, it, Europe is in a demographic, uh, a very difficult demographic situation. Um, they've stopped having kids. The European population overall started declining, uh, you know, around the, the turn of uh, the turn of the last century, uh, and the, that decline continues to accelerate. Um, that, 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 what that has created is a situation in which there's been a rapid aging in population. You mentioned Italy before. Mm-hmm. The median age in Italy today is 48. Ooh. 
I mean, it's a really old population. So one of the only ways that you can actually deal with that to get younger people into the population is to bring in immigrants. But it's the cultural change that's caused by that that people are pushing back against. So Italians saying, you know, who are all these people? They're not Italians. We want to, you know, maintain ourselves as Italian. Immigration isn't acceptable to large segments of the Italian population. But you can take that to Spain. You can take that to France. Uh, Great Britain's actually uh, softened up a bit in terms of public opinion over the last little while. It's not as strongly uh, anti-immigrant, but, you know, all the countries that you went to before, um, we've seen the rise of the political right as a response to, uh, to immigration. Okay. Daryl, I always appreciate you coming on the program. It's always very, very informative to, to speak with you, and uh, it's, it's great to have this information. And I always say this, I'm going to say it again. Thank you for the book. Thank you for next. My pleasure, Roy. Thank you. Thanks for all the kind words. I really appreciate it. So there was this editorial many people in this country are aware of, of course, by the Wall Street Journal two days ago. Canada is a military free rider in NATO. Now, I've been in this business for many, many years, and I know how it works. And my feeling is, my guess would be, that the Wall Street Journal might have been encouraged to write that editorial during the NATO conference. It may not have been uh, something that one of their columnists or reporters came up with. They may have received a little bit of a communication from somewhere in the U.S. defense system saying, why did you write this? But that is also happening at home. John Iveson, who I respect, a columnist with the National Post, headline, our NATO allies have little patience left for Trudeau's freeloading. So why the criticism? Well, our military, we now know, stands at just below 63,000 members with antiquated at times and out-of-commission weapons and weapon systems. Just the way it is. It's not just Trudeau. It's been going on for years. But Trudeau is the one who's in power now and has been for seven years. And he talks a good game and wears nice socks. Meanwhile, and I tweeted this the other day, 98,000 new members of the public service were hired during Mr. Trudeau's tenure over the seven years, 98,000, but our military stands just below 63,000 members, and they don't have what they need. It's always an honor for me, and I mean this very sincerely, to speak with Vice Admiral Mark Norman, now retired, former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, and Vice Chief of the Defense Staff. Admiral Norman, how are you? I'm really well, Roy, and good afternoon to you and your listeners. Um, looking forward to our conversation, as I always do. Yeah, and I've been looking forward to talking to you all weekend as these NATO meetings have gone on. So the Prime Minister was in Latvia and Lithuania making pronouncements about Canada's commitment and contributions to the Alliance, talking to our military members about climate change. Um, but but no one in the alliance is buying this uh, this speech anymore. And what is that? What did that editorial in the Wall Street Journal say to you? Yeah, I, it was uh, it was a pretty powerful piece, and uh, I was kind of chuckling to myself as you were introducing it this afternoon. Uh, the theory being, of course, that things like this don't happen by accident. I w- I would tend to agree. Somebody was behind that. Uh, there is there is an underlying sense of frustration. So look, let's for your listeners, let's put this uh, week of NATO in some context here. So we've got this ongoing debate about uh, contributions to NATO, how much is enough, and we can come back to that. We've got 
the uh, clearly the we're now almost 17, 18 months into the crisis in Ukraine. That's uh, top of mind, and the alliance is struggling with that. We've got issues around uh, the admission of Sweden. So, of course, Finland is on board now. Sweden is uh, going through the process. So, Turkey was convinced to allow Sweden. So, hopefully, that's going to go. We've got. Um, Issues are associated with uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky's comments about his frustration about, you know, when is the the alliance going to make a clear commitment to allow Ukraine to join? And, of course, that has all the implications. And then we've got this cluster munition thing buried in the middle of all this where not everybody agrees and we're and the alliance is supplying um, Ukraine with cluster munitions. So this is kind of the backdrop of the week in Vilnius. And to your question specifically as it relates to the Prime Minister's announcements and statements, I think um, in some ways it was masterful in that he took all the air out of the balloon of the critics, but only momentarily, because by announcing that we're going to up our contribution to Lafayette to 2,000 people, plus all the equipment, plus, 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 um, that that demonstrates a degree of commitment and not all the other countries in the alliance are, are stepping up in the same way, but it's a bit of a hollow uh, or arguably shallow uh, argument. And of course, then there's this underlying issue of um, our contributions, our funding level, which is uh, woefully inadequate. And um, the net result, as you introduced, is we have a shrinking force that is uh, basically atrophying on a daily basis. So there's the context for our conversation, I guess. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I appreciate that, Admiral. So I'm thinking about, or was thinking about, our CAF members in Europe trying to go about their business, trying to represent this country to the best of their ability within the, within the NATO alliance, doing the job that they're sent to do. And then we find out that Members of our uh, CAF in Latvia uh, had to go out and buy helmets and uh, had to buy belts and vests, protective equipment themselves. And uh, the CAF trainers sent to Poland were sent there without a cook. And it sounds, you know, it's, it's almost comical, but it isn't. They were then told to eat at restaurants but the government has not reimbursed the soldiers for the cost of their meals. And no one's going to say that these soldiers are overpaid. So uh, how difficult is it under those circumstances with fighting raging not far from where you are to operate as a military professional under the circumstances, under these circumstances and the circumstances you just described? Yeah, well, I think, you know, what you've just characterized um, gives us sort of two extreme perspectives. One is there's no denying the systemic failures um, with respect to the ability to support the troops, the um, procurement, all those types of things. And unfortunately, these these examples are beyond anecdotal. They're now becoming more and more um, commonplace, which is really unfortunate. And then at the other end, I genuinely believe what we're seeing is the um, unbelievable 
and almost um, unimaginable uh, dedication and loyalty uh, being demonstrated by these folks in light of what are um, some pretty ridiculously uh, bureaucratic circumstances that they find themselves in. And nonetheless, they're continuing to do um, the great job that they are, and they're continuing to represent Canada in a way that all of your listeners should be incredibly proud of. Yeah. Yeah. And th- there's no apology coming forward for them being treated with the way they are. As far as the uh, food reimbursement is concerned, they've oh, yeah, we're going to pay them, you know, we're going to move that up on our schedule. Well, use your credit cards, they were told. These credit cards have limits for these soldiers, and and you you're there to perform in 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 a military fashion. I mean, I was an OSS in the RCNR, um, but but I I got my food, and I had a uniform, and I when we when we had shore leave, Admiral, uh, we knew we came back to some level of sense of security. It wasn't necessarily the most modern ship, but it stayed afloat, and and there was a there was a sense of I will tell you there was a sense of real pride wearing the uniform, and there still is. I will never forget that experience. And these young people are volunteers, and their dedication has to be rewarded. What really bothers me tremendously is that nobody apologized, nobody took responsibility, nobody said this is wrong just doesn't fly. Am I, am I missing the boat on this? No pun intended. No, no, Roy. And I, you know, I really respect and appreciate your, your response. And I, you know, I think um, certainly the indications I'm getting are that the chain of command themselves are, are fully seized with this issue, these issues. Um, they do take it very seriously. And I think, you know, part of the challenge is um, how defense, has to um, literally fight uh, it's uh, amongst you know the machinery of government across the machinery of government um, on a almost day to day basis to to sort out these kinds of things and a lot of these bureaucratic issues you know we've talked about other things in the past are are imposed by other organizations that doesn't make it right it doesn't excuse it um, but it does. Uh, unfortunately, uh, explain it to some degree. But back to, I think, one of the the underlying premises of your earlier question, which is, you know, the the Canadian Forces is well below the strength it needs to be trying to attract uh, new recruits, trying to get um, new enrollees, new Canadians, in fact. Um, you know, they've, they've changed the citizenship requirement now and, and trying to get folks. But the, the challenge, as you lay out, is that it's hard to uh, encourage people to join an organization which is being seen uh, publicly to um, have a whole bunch of problems. Uh, and many of them self-inflicted, but equally many of them just bureaucratic in nature and not really representative of the kind of leading-edge, innovative organization that a lot of young people want to be part of. And it's unfortunate because there are real, uh, really uh, attractive opportunities. And uh, I go back to what you said about the quality of the people that are out there actually doing the business on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, um, I've said this before, you and I have talked about it many times, um, this problem has been decades uh, in, in, in development and uh, it's not going to be fixed overnight. 
but it needs to be acknowledged as a significant problem. Uh, it's like any serious problem, be it your own personal uh, behavior, health, maybe an addiction, whatever. The first thing you have to do is admit that you actually have the problem. And that seems to be where we're, we're unwilling to admit it. We're out there claiming that uh, we're doing all these great things, um, which in isolation may be true, but systemically um, it's a bit of a Potemkin village. Yeah, running around with a pot of paint. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's not untrue. It's uh, the only one, I mean, that just came to mind about 30 seconds ago. They're running around internationally with a pot of paint. Yeah, that that is, you know, there is, there is an aspect to that. And, you know, one of the concerns about um, celebrating the uh, increase uh, to the battle group in Latvia, as, as strategically significant as that is, and I need your viewers to understand, this is not a trivial uh, or, or, or token uh, contribution. This is a significant contribution to bolstering the deterrent forces that are pre-deployed on the eastern front of NATO. Uh, right up against the, the Russian border. This, this is this is real stuff, and it's really important. But what gets lost in that, and this is why um, I don't like admitting it, but it was a masterful move on the part of the current government, is by celebrating that, uh, their hope is that they will um, basically distract or 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 uh, decoy um, the conversation uh, away from the bigger issues around. Uh, the contribution budget, uh, the the, uh, the the funding, and uh, issues around the, the shrinking size of the force and the problems with the procurement and all these other systemic issues. So it's kind of a bit of a, you know, I could go as far as to say it was a bit of a bait and switch um, from a from a marketing perspective, but um, you know, and this is where going back to how you opened the segment, this is where I think uh, the more sophisticated of our allies are certainly looking at this and they're seeing it for exactly what it is. Uh, Admiral, we're at a time now where that ubiquitous bucket of paint isn't going to get you anywhere anymore. And and vacuous statements from irrelevant ministers of defense are not good enough any longer. The world is looking at us because we have a prominent role. We accept that. Our governments like to get out there and push the fact that we're Canadian, we're contributors. What do we have to do to fulfill that role? Is it about spending the money that we're committed to spend according to the NATO agreement of 2014? Is it more than that? What do we have to do? Well, Roy, I think there's a couple of uh, substantive uh, things that need to be fixed. I mean, let's address the funding issue, first of all. You you know, I've said this before, um, I I don't believe the 2% is a is a very uh, effective metric, but it is the metric that NATO has adopted. So um, I, I think the issue is not about the two percent per se. It's about um, the extent to which you're actually investing in and building um, and uh, modernizing your armed forces. And and the reality is, as you set out in the beginning of the last segment, uh, the armed forces is shrinking. And we're falling behind as it relates to significant uh, procurement activity, notwithstanding the announcements and notwithstanding the celebrations that we get on a regular basis and have had for decades. The the bottom line is we need to fix that 
piece. We need to we need to stabilize the force, grow the force, and modernize the force. And whether it's two percent or not, to me, that's not the debate. Is we know that what we're spending now is not enough, and we know that our allies are expecting us to do more. And and to be honest, we need to do more just to sort out our own business. Um, that, that, that's my first comment. The second thing is... And Admiral, we, I, I always do this to you. I'm sorry, we have 60 seconds. Yeah, it's, and the second point is credibility. And I think that goes right to the theme that you've been laying out, and I'll let you get the last word, but it, we, we don't have any credibility. And, um, you know, that, that, that at least will allow you to carry some arguments. Whether you win the arguments or not, at least you can go into them starting on the basis of strength and with credibility, and we don't have that either. So we're failing systemically and structurally, and we don't have credibility, and I think that that puts us um, on our back feet, and that's not the kind of country that that we need to be um, as we look into the decades ahead, and and things are just going to get more and more challenging um, internationally, just as they are domestically. So those are my closing thoughts. Admiral, I learned a long time ago that an ordinary seaman standard never gets the last word in a conversation with an admiral. I know that, sir. Thank you for the time today. All the best to you, Roy, and your (laughs) listeners. Have a great day. So, whenever I talk about COVID, or whenever I talk about viruses or governments or what may have happened or may be happening, there's always a tremendous amount of response. And uh, my guest is a leading expert on laboratory accidents. She's an author, of course, and professor with the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Her book reveals her groundbreaking investigation of laboratory accidents and the risk of future pandemics. Pardon me. My guest is Professor Allison Young. And uh, her book is Pandora's Gamble, Lab Leaks, and a World at Risk. Professor Young was the first journalist to obtain an exclusive interview with the NIH's Dr. Anthony Fauci and reveal key details about a secret February 1st, 2020, listen to this now, teleconference where an elite group of international scientists discussed significant concerns that the newly emerged then COVID-19 virus looked like it had been created in a lab and then abruptly changed their view after the meeting. Now, this past Tuesday, a congressional hearing before the U.S. Senate Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic began to examine the potential role played by high-profile scientists in suppressing investigation of the lab leak hypotheses of the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Allison Young is the University of Missouri School of Journalism, Curtis B. Hurley Chair in Public Affairs Reporting and the Director of the University of Washington, or University's Washington, D.C. program. She's the recipient of multiple national and international investigative journalism awards. Uh, I don't want to call you Professor. I want to call you Allison. Is that okay? It absolutely is. Thank you for having me on your show. I have to tell you, I read your book. I got it sent two days ago in PDF form. I read it all. I had a lot of things to do, but I wanted to read your book. So, Allison, I have far more questions for you than our allotted time allows, but let's give it a try. 
You begin your book, Pandora's Gamble, with a cable sent from the U.S. Embassy in Washington about a new biolab opening in a place called Wuhan, China, and the concerns associated with that lab. Can you start us off with that? Absolutely. So before the pandemic began, uh, there were some scientists and some experts from uh, the U.S. Embassy that went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This particular lab had recently opened um, a biosafety level four facility. This is the highest level of biosafety in labs around the world. Uh, this kind of a lab works with the most dangerous pathogens, things like the Ebola virus. Um, and and there, they went there to see what was going on. What they heard from some of the staff at this lab was concerns about lack of training um, at the facility. And, and that early cable um, did sign, show some warning signs well before the pandemic began. And, and that particular lab has been uh, at the center of concerns that COVID-19 uh, could have come from a lab accident in China. Yeah. So, so there were the concerns that this new virus, COVID, may have originated in the Wuhan lab. And then they began to be derided as a conspiracy theory. Why and who was behind this? And what was that call on February 1st, 2020 all about? It was a pretty remarkable call. When you consider the fact that we expect pandemics to happen, uh, we are increasingly as, as human beings encroaching upon wild areas and coming into contact with animals and the viruses that they carry. So it's expected that there will be outbreaks and pandemics associated with animals. Um, so it's pretty phenomenal that some of the world's leading scientists came together on February 1st of 2020 to discuss the possibility and their very real concerns that the virus causing this this emerging outbreak at that time looked like it had been engineered in a lab. And this particular meeting um, was was convened by two of the most powerful scientists in the world, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was at the time the top infectious disease um, official at the U.S. National Institutes of Health. And Jeremy Farrar, who at the time was running the Wellcome Trust, both of these these organizations are two of the leading funders of biomedical research. And also at the time that this here this um, meeting was being called, um, it was known inside the National Institutes of Health that the NIH had funded some of the research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Okay, so is this a case of uh, follow the money? There, there definitely have been lots of questions about following the money and the various interests that um, are at play when when research is funded and when various scientists have have uh, collaborating relationships. Um, what what was surprising about this meeting is that the scientists all came together. They debated whether or not this virus um, may have come from a lab. One of the scientists, um, to give you an, your your listeners an idea of how seriously they were taking this, um, one of the leading um, scientists 
in these emails that have come out over time, talks about how the unusual features of this virus um, make it look potentially engineered. And as they have this meeting, they're debating back and forth about how they're bothered that this specific feature that the virus has, that they have a hard time explaining that an event outside of the lab um, could have caused it. Um, it's there's this remarkable discussion of concerns. Meanwhile, there were some on this this secret teleconference who who very much from the get go said we don't think it was engineered, but also expressed concerns that even the discussion that COVID-19 could have come from a lab would have the potential to damage science. Um, it had the potential to also damage relations, international relations between the U.S. and China. Um, so there were those kinds of interests that were in being debated as well. And and it's one thing for this debate to be going on. But then very shortly after this meeting occurred, you had one of the key participants on the call writing in an email to other prominent scientists who were advising the White House out of the U.S. National Academies of Sciences, um, saying that that this is, you know, these are crackpot theories. Um, so going from literally being in a discussion, leading um, the discussion about concerns that this looks like this virus was either engineered or manipulated in some way um, in the lab. And and then within a span of about three days by by basically between Saturday and a Tuesday in early February 2020, the scientist basically telling this other group of scientists that they need to push back against these crackpot theories that are. And in this country, um, Allison, there was uh, there was one point where a reporter speculated in front of the federal minister of health, that perhaps China was involved in uh, in the goings on with COVID, and uh, that reporter, it was immediately suggested, had a racist position, shut him up very quickly. And then you write about um, the issue being muddied by politics and the cultural divide. I'll ask you about that in a minute, but let me ask you uh, first about that exclusive interview that you had with with Dr. Anthony Fauci about COVID in 2020. How did that go, and what did you come away with? So that interview, um, the interview was actually in uh, about a year after the secret meeting. Th this meeting would still remain secret had information not come out under U.S. Federal Freedom of Information Act requests. And um, the National Institutes of Health and other government agencies have really fought to keep information about this meeting secret. Um, and so it wasn't just Freedom of Information Act. It was lawsuits that had to be filed. And so some of the information started trickling out in 2021 about this meeting. And and I requested an interview with Dr. Fauci. Um, and it was an interesting meeting in the sense that it was a short uh, phone call call. Um, and, and unlike many interviews where you will get a heads up that you're actually being granted an interview, um, in this case, Dr. Fauci called my phone unexpectedly one day um, to talk about this secret meeting. Um, and he, he said he remembered it very well. He spoke about how that it was a scientific discussion, that, that there were some on the side of it being engineered and others who really felt uh, strongly that it could only be 
of a natural origin. He said he took the position he had an open mind um, at that time and still did at the time we had our interview um, and that that it was suggested coming out of this meeting that there should be further study. Um, so it was it was an interesting discussion. It is really one of the very few times he has spoken in detail publicly about that. And it was the first time he had um, at the time I talked to him. Mm -hmm. Pandora's Gamble, lab leaks and the world at risk. You write as well. There have been major lab leaks in the United States, including Camp Detrick. And tell us, please, what happened at the University of Wisconsin Level 3 lab in 2019. Yeah, that was a particularly um, significant incident at the University of Wisconsin. They are a lab that has um, been been under the microscope going back almost a decade because of their work doing what has been called gain of function research. That's where um, various um, pathogens are worked with and manipulated in ways to make them perhaps more deadly or more transmissible than what's found in nature. And they had created um, a a strain of avian influenza um, back around, it became public around 2011, that could transmit among ferrets through the air. And the reason that's significant is that ferrets are the model for how a virus might behave in humans. Flu viruses might behave in humans. And so it was highly controversial, this virus in 2011, when when the world uh, became aware that it had been created in these labs. What, what I was revealing in Pandora's Gamble is that they actually had an accident with this very same virus in um, in 2019, where they had three scientists in their biosafety level three lab, two of them who were experienced researchers and one who was a trainee. And when you're in a biosafety level three lab, um, these researchers are covered in multiple layers of personal protective gear. They've got on Tyvek suits. They um, are double gloved. They're doing everything they can to protect themselves from becoming unknowingly infected with a potential airborne virus. And in in this particular case, the most important piece of equipment that these scientists was wear, were wearing was what's called a powered air purifying respirator. It's like a face mask and it's hooked up to HEPA filtered air through a, through a hose. It almost looks like a vacuum cleaner hose going down the scientist's back. And as they're working with these ferrets um, and and taking various specimens, the trainee notices that something's wrong with their respirator, which was delivering safe air to them. And the hose had become detached and was loose in the potentially contaminated air of this lab. Um, what, what I report in the book and reveal for the first time is that, you know, it's one thing for a mishap to happen, but what, what happened next is that they ultimately release this researcher from quarantine. They didn't ever report the incident to state and local public health officials, even though that had been something that the lab had represented going back years would occur. There were delays in reporting the incident to the National Institutes of Health, even though the NIH would say and is quoted in the book as saying that this was required to be reported immediately. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was... It was an incident that, that raises a number of, of 
really concerning questions about the amount of trust that the public puts in these kinds of labs, because the public is trusting that when something goes wrong, that incidents are going to be reported immediately and they're going to be followed up by by organizations that are supposed to be overseeing these labs. Yeah, I just have a very short period of time here. Um, So how concerned must we be about perhaps ongoing or future lab accidents, which may have the potential to spread another pandemic creating pathogen? It's something that everyone should be concerned about. We've all experienced how devastating a pandemic can be. Um, And there have been organizations, including the Government Accountability Office, which is a nonpartisan organization that have warned for many years that the more of these labs that are being built and doing risky research, the greater the risks of a lab escape causing a devastating epidemic. So we all need to be concerned and educate ourselves on this topic. We're going to talk to my great friend, Murray Pomerantz, independent scholar and adjunct professor in the Department of Media and Communications at RMIT University, Melbourne. His most recent book, just out in paperback, is Color It True, Impressions of Cinema. So I'm going to add this as an editorial comment, Murray. You're one of the most respected authors of books about film and the actors and directors in the industry and uh, and film critics. You're just the most knowledgeable person when it comes to film in the world, period. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) You are. I don't think so. But, hey, Top Gun... The, the 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 franchise 1.85 billion <laughs> it's okay. insane okay. but listen to me that's nothing that's nothing the mission impossible movies there are five of them as of this minute roy 2.25 billion at this minute and climbing because the new one has just been open for one weekend <laughs> so, so you know, whatever we think about Tom Cruise, and, you know, there are a lot of people who think a lot of different things, and many of those different things all at the same time. This guy's good money. Like, if you put him in a movie, you're going to make money. And those who only want to do that, he's not what I'd call an artistic film star. But if you're just trying to make money, he's a good investment. And, and wasn't he responsible for delaying Maverick? And yeah, and it he turned he held he held it held he it was, back. He was bouncing back and forth with the COVID and with so many other things. And even now, you know, I don't know if you heard the most recent news. I haven't heard today's news, but with the actor strike, he's a little bit worried about one of the opening venues for the new Mission Impossible and whether it would be opening there. So, you know, I mean his his ability to bring in money is very much tied to what goes on in the industry. Yeah, well, you know, he's an interesting I, I, let, character. He starts out. <clears throat> I don't know. The early movies make like twenty, thirty mil, right. and they're pretty silly little ventures. Until nineteen eighty three, when he comes on with Risky Business, where he shows himself as a kind of grinning, brash gutsy teenage boy mm-hmm. uh, a figure that I guess in, in North America we just love to love the Apollo figure and uh, 
he gets the attention somewhere between 1983 and 10 years later of a woman named Paula Wagner, who in 1996 produces the first Mission Impossible, and then he joins her and they become a producing team. She's responsible for the kind of breakout Tom Cruise. Okay, so I, I can tell you're not you're not a big fan, um, but I am. I, I, I I'm, fa- I'm a fan of. Well, let me put it this way: I'm a fan of certain movies of his, not all of them. Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder. I loved The Firm. I loved Mission Impossible. I'm probably the only guy, one of the few. I haven't even watched one of them all the way through, and I'm going to. Um, well, they're actually pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to watch them. And he does his own yeah, stunts, yeah. right? I mean, that's well known. He does his own stunts. You know, the movie he made with Jack Nicholson is pretty good. Oh, yeah. Are you He's kidding really me? Rain Man? I was just saying to our technical yes. producer, yes. you have to see Rain Man. And we always forget Rain Man, don't we, when we're talking about, you know, Brash Tom Cruise. He's very good in Rain Man. Yes, he is. Few and Good Men I, wasn't too bad either. Yeah. True. Come on, Murray. Can you imagine that he's working with Dustin Hoffman with that kind of chemistry in Rain Man, and it's really clicking? It was really beautiful. Yeah, it was well done. It was really, really well done. What did you think of Jerry Maguire? Eh, but that's just... <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's, you know, that's the subject matter for me wasn't a big turn on um, okay. as much as the performances. So, you know, they're all competent. Hey, Roy, these guys are all competent. Believe me, they know what they're doing in yeah. front of the camera, so you're not going to get much of a bad performance. When you and I talked on the phone the other day, you, you hit the nail on the head. Tom Cruise's career was built on that smile. Yeah, I think Nobody so. has a smile like that. No, I don't think they do. Many have tried. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's like you could say Arnold's career was built on his biceps. Mm-hmm. Because whatever else, that's finally what shows in every movie. Uh, there's a snarky little line, but it's the biceps. How would you compare Tom Cruise to Clint Eastwood? Huh. Oh, God, that is so difficult because, you see, Clint Eastwood has aged and matured like a good scotch. Yeah, he has. You know, and his most recent films are very provocative and profound. Mm-hmm. So I think you mean the younger Clint Eastwood. And I mean this, Murray, and my friend Cynthia is going to cringe. I know what you're thinking. Has he fired six shots or only five? Well, i got to tell you, in all the excitement, I plumb forgot. But seeing this, this is a Magnum 44, the most powerful handgun in the world, and it'll blow your head clean off, you got to ask yourself, do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? That yeah. I don't know why I remember that. Except Dirty Harry to me, Dirty Harry to me was a transition time in my life. Oh, oh, oh. bingo! What do you Absolutely. mean, don't go? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I, I was I was yeah. at that time in my life where I was transitioning from a teenager into an adult. Well. You want to know about Eastwood. You have two things going there, and he he flashes the two of them together. One of them is stature. It's the way he stands, or if he's on a horse, the way he rides. Fantastic to watch him ride. Um, And it's the voice. 
It's the, the voice. Film. That's what I remember. More than the it's scene, it. I remember the voice. Absolutely. The very quiet voice saying very loud things. He never yells. No, he never does. Just before that scene, there's a bank robbery that's taking place, and he's standing in a diner. He's eating a hot dog, and the hot dog isn't finished being chewed yet, and he hears the gunfire, and he just looks outside, and he says very quietly, one word, the S word. <laughs> because he'd really rather finish the hot so dog. He'd really rather finish the hot dog, yeah, and yeah, he, yeah, wa he, walks, of... he walks out of the diner, pulls this monster Magnum 44 out of his Holster. He's great. He's great. He's oh, great. yeah, he's great. It's absolutely wonderful. And, and let me, I'm sorry, I don't mean to dominate this conversation, and it's no, not no. mine to dominate. But I will tell you, Clint Eastwood is, has always been my number one favorite actor. And my favorite movie of all time, Clint Eastwood's, was the outlaw Josie Wales. And it was his relationship with Chief Dan George that oh, made yeah. that movie so special. Right. And he looked at Dan George with a deep look, and he drank that look because he became that, you see. That's the Clint Eastwood of the old, of the more recent films. Yeah. The turning point is the film called Blood Work. If you haven't seen it, you I have to see it. I haven't seen it. Okay. So he's an old cop who's had a heart transplant, which means he better not run too fast. <laughs> and we see all kinds of stuff having to do with his physicality. Like he's in a he's in a in a surgery room having a medical exam with Angel Angelica Houston playing the doctor. It's incredibly tender. You just don't get this from Clint Eastwood. Hey, you asked me, I think, to think about who I think are the younger actors to watch. But I really want to ask you where you believe. Let's take the talent, the appeal and the money into consideration. Yeah. Where I'll ask you where Tom Cruise fits on the scale. Clint Eastwood fits. And I haven't got to my third favorite actor of all time, Denzel Washington. I haven't said anything about Denzel you Washington know, yet. Denzel plays the color card. He's a talented actor. He's got good delivery. He can move, but... If he were not black, I don't think we'd be watching those characters. Really? Whereas I wouldn't say that wow. about other people. See, for me, the guy to watch is Idris Elba. Who's that? So Idris Elba, I believe, was born in London. He's bigger than Denzel. I'd say he's probably two or three inches taller and a little heftier. He's very, he's very athletic looking, like a fullback. He's got enormous range. I mean, this guy can do Shakespeare. He can do a mafia movie. He can do anything. So Idris Elba, E-L-B-A. A lot of your audience know about this guy already. He's worth keeping an eye on. Um, for women, there's a woman named Viola Davis, who I have to tell you, uh, she just really blows me away. She's got it. She's got style. She's got class. She's got a voice, and she's got attitude. She's got an amazing way of modulating attitude. 
So I would, you know, I would, I would look to her. You're going to see that develop even more. I think she's already won a lot of awards, but I think we're going to see that grow. Andrew Garfield is an interesting young actor, uh, another British fellow. But I gotta, it's hilarious. The first films I saw of Andrew Garfield, I could have sworn he was born in Los Angeles, and it was only much, much later that I learned that he's actually English. No, no kidding. He's well, I, I don't look. You don't care about my actors. I don't much care about yours. <laughs> <laughs> no. So here's the thing with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is 61 years old, right? Is he really? Yes, he is 61. Oh That's my! One, and he's God. he's running around, jogging through his movies, hanging off airplanes, doing his own stuff, bragging him. about it. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. But don't you wonder. When he gets closer to our age, will he still be doing this? I sure hope so. Yeah, well, well, I do. I, do. I really hope so. I mean, I, I think it'd be lovely. I, I just, I just, I just like the guy. I just, I just like. Well, let's move to it this way. I like certain movies of his, yeah, and I yeah. like them a lot. Clint Eastwood, though, always be number one for me. Another movie that I really like from Clint Eastwood is Pale Rider. Okay, what about the strike? What's well, going on? I was going to say to you. I was going to say to you. We're looking for Tom Cruise to keep growing and developing. And we would say the same thing about all these other actors. But you know, what this strike is really all about is whether that's going to be possible for them. Because the main issue for the actors is studios and producers having legal right over their image as digitally manipulable. Not just a photograph that can be put into a newspaper, but a digital file that can be modulated and changed. Example, in short, Do we need Tom Cruise once we have this information? Example. Well, can you make a movie, instead of using actors, using digital oh, forms that have you. been worked up into characterization? I got you. And if, if it's an action movie that's already supposed to look like a cartoon, and this mm -hmm. even looks more like a cartoon, will mm -hmm. any of the younger people in the audience complain, or will they still pay their money? So the actors have a lot to lose here. And mm -hmm. it's the same kind of thing that everybody in the whole world is worried about losing in terms of the computer economy taking over the world. Because mm -hmm. once you have computers, uh, actual workers can be dispensed with. In, artificial in, intelligence. In, 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 artificial intelligence, artificial labor, you know, robotics, yeah, yeah, the yeah, whole yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, who's doing what? So I've seen stuff recently showing how some of the shots were made in some of these action movies. And they're made with an extraordinarily elaborate camera mount, dolly, uh, crane, and um, how can I describe it? A choreographed movement system. So actually, the camera can flip upside down and go absolutely all over the place on a computer program with nobody there operating it. <laughs> So in short, whatever happened to the cinematographer and to his assistant? The so, so, so you and I could star in an action movie. Yes, I think we we may be starring in one any day now. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing. Oh yeah, yeah, I am laughing. I yeah, they always to... laugh first. Yeah, I know, I know, you I know. know, I know. Um, Murray, yeah. Murray, I, uh, yeah. tell me about tell me a little bit about your book, Color It True Impressions of Cinema. Oh, you know, um, <laughs> I was I was asked to write a book that I wanted to write, so I'm crazy about color. So 
this book has 14 chapters, and each chapter is a different color. And in each chapter, there's somewhere around 10 or 12 little um, meditations on film usages of that color. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.